1: when the miles rack up faster than your flush count that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from final rise built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the usa the complete lineup of hunting vests from final rise from their all-new summit xt down to the minimalist sidekick system are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most The Project Upland Podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. And by Onex Maps. Know where you stand. You are listening to the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome back to the show for episode number 40. The Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the best rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience in northern Minnesota. Adventure awaits you. Check out Pine Ridge Grouse Camp and by Onyx Maps, also the best and most powerful mapping application for people that love the outdoors like you and like me. Download the Onyx Hunt app from the Google Play or Apple iTunes store today. You're going to want to have Onyx Maps on your mobile device or GPS device this hunting season. If you haven't tried it, you're missing out. Get it today. Onyxmaps.com And buy our newest partner on the Project Upland podcast, Gumleaf USA, Gumleaf Boots. You've got to check out gumleafusa.com and check out their selection of high quality, handcrafted, super premium, durable rubber boots. I love Gumleaf Boots because of their fit, their finish, and most importantly, their durability. I've burned up a couple pairs of rubber boots from another manufacturer. They don't have as high of a rubber content in those boots and they wear out. Fast. They wear out in a hurry. I put a season on my Gumleaf boots. I wore them a lot. I'll be going into my second season with them. So far, they are holding up as advertised. I'll keep you posted. But for now, I love my Gumleaf boots. You got to check them out. Go to gumleafusa.com and use the promo code PU2018 for free shipping on gumleafusa.com. This week's winner of the Project Up and Podcast giveaway, no brainer, my buddy Ted Summer. He recommended today's guest, which was a stellar recommendation, as you will all soon find out. Thank you to Ted, and I believe there was even another person that recommended our guest today at almost the same time as Ted. So I will go back, check my emails. If it was you, don't worry, I didn't forget about you. You'll be a co-winner of this week's podcast giveaway. Now, for you the listeners, any of you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do, I remind you every week, make a meaningful contribution to this show for example leave us a rating leave the podcast a review subscribe to our podcast via your listening application share the podcast post or send me some feedback commentary or suggestions I love to hear from listeners. I'm starting to get more and more feedback every week, and I love it. Everybody's excited. Hunting season is right around the corner. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. You can be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All right, let's do it, everybody. Seriously, we're almost there. It's almost September. August is almost over. I love August. Great month. Spent some time at the cabin, getting the dogs conditioned, got on some sharp-tailed grouse. I did a lot of cool stuff this month, actually, that I haven't done before, and I could not be any more excited to hit the road head west for my first trip of the season, go to North Dakota and Montana, a little Project Upland slash fun trip. It's going to be a blast. Going to meet up with some good folks. Hopefully, we'll bring the Project Upland podcast with us, as long as we don't have any technical difficulties. I've never taken this show on the road. But I know others have successfully done it. So I'm confident that we will bring the Project Up and Podcast on the road to Bird Camp and have some off leash podcasting adventures at Bird Camp. All right, today's episode, if it doesn't get you excited for hunting season, I don't know what will. You might be a lost cause. I hope not. We are headed to the interior of Alaska, the great wilderness, the final frontier, whatever you wanna call it. It's big, it's huge, it's expansive. There is some serious upland hunting to be had in Alaska. It may be out of reach for many of us, but I can tell you one thing. After talking to today's guest, I'm scratching my head thinking about how I could pull off a hunt there because it sounds awesome, especially if you could go hunting with somebody like our guest today. Today's guest is Jim McCann. Jim has been living and hunting in Alaska for over 50 years. You might recognize him from his absolutely amazing photography that he shares frequently on Facebook via his gallery jimmccannoutdoors.com. Jim and I have an excellent conversation today about upland hunting Alaska, the wide variety of options he has at his fingertips with duck dogs, duck guns, the usual suspects. So I hope you enjoy today's episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Let's welcome to the show Jim McCann. Hi, Jim. Here we go. Welcome to the Project Up the Podcast. Well, thank you, Nick. I'm glad to be here today. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to have you on the podcast, as with all my guests. And I am really, really excited to talk to you because you have been teasing myself along with uh, a lot of other people that, that follow your stuff on Facebook with some phenomenal photographs, as, as you are wont to do. But, Jim, you've got, you've got the first taste of hunting season.
0: I do, I do. We, we're pretty lucky in that regard. It starts uh, in most areas on August tenth, and although that is a little early, uh, it's uh, it's the, the woods is pretty thick, uh, pretty green, and the birds are pretty young. But it's a good time for me and the dogs to get out. You know, get get some exercise again and uh, get them back to work. And we like to think we're training some of the young birds. We don't shoot them, but uh, we sure train them to flush and and learn the, the ways of uh, getting away from a pointing dog and a shotgun.
1: <laughs> exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. Well, Jim, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I have the, I guess, inside information of, of knowing generally where you are, but some of our listeners might not. So why don't you put us on the map, Jim, and let us know where you are and where you do the bulk of your hunting, where we speaking to you from. Well, I, I live in
0: Fairbanks. I've been here for oh, just about 50 years now. Hard to believe it's, it's gone by quickly, you know. The, but um, Fairbanks is really the heart of the interior, and it's the heart of Alaska's upland hunting. Really, uh, you can get fantastic, wildly crazy ptarmigan hunting elsewhere, but here in the interior, you have a uh, you have rough grouse. Uh, sharp-tailed grouse, spruce grouse, willow ptarmigan, and rock ptarmigan, and and really a nine-month-long season. Although I should qualify that by saying that in the middle of winter, you're not thinking about going hunting. You're hoping your car will start if you don't have a garage or something, or if you left it outside the movie theater for too long. Um, it's pretty cold and ugly, but, um, I've just learned over the decades that uh, there are breaks in the weather and I sneak out with the dogs whenever I can.
1: That really is the shtick a little bit with Alaska you do have a very long season. You get this early start as we talked about, but certainly one would expect, I've never been to Alaska in the winter. I've been up there fishing one time, but I've never been there in the winter and one would imagine very cold temps. How about snow levels? Do you get, do you get piled on with snow? Well,
0: Sometimes we do. I mean, it's like anything else. There's oftentimes there's snow droughts. Okay. And, you know, there isn't much snow on the ground and the uh, the snow machines salespeople are, are depressed and uh, <laughs> the snow machiners are depressed. And, and I'm only depressed if, if there's no snow and it's really frigid cold. But uh, but generally, most years we have plenty of roosting snow, you get a couple of feet on the ground and uh, and the rough grouse and the sharp-tailed grouse and the ptarmigan and whatever uh, have plenty of good roosting snow. So, uh, And they're adaptive, you know, to this to this weather. I mean, they, they've been doing it for thousands of years. And to them, it's not that big a deal, um, except that, you know, a, a long winter. It's hard on humans, but it's also hard on, let's say, uh, a female rough grouse. I, I like to think of them uh, coming out of winter in great shape so they can have large hatches of, uh, of chicks, but that's the kind of thing I worry about. But uh, generally there's plenty of snow for snow lifting. Yeah. Um,
1: Very interesting. Just given the sheer expanse and the wildness of, of Alaska, I, I have to imagine that there are, there are many, many animals that, that go through their entire lives without ever seeing a human. And it, it goes to your point that these are native birds that we're talking about and they have been on the landscape for a very long time and as much and as concerned as we get as hunters. And I think it's in our nature to look at the weather conditions and pay attention because we have such deep passions for these birds. You always want to, Mm -hmm. you want the best for them. and, And it's hard not to put your own sort of emotions and, and personal feelings and attach them on the situation. But it's a good reminder yep. that that these birds are native birds and they've been here for a long long time.
0: It, it is. And you know Alaska is kind of an interesting place in that it is so huge. Um it there's parts of Alaska that are totally different from the other the arctic is, you know, flatter and and bare and uh, and colder and Um, many treeless areas, and then the interior, you know, it's all mostly boreal forest. Uh, When you get down to southeast Alaska, it's, I think you've been there before to Sitka, you know, it's all water. It rains all the time. It's large Sitka spruce trees and no grouse, except for a few uh, blue grouse. But here in the interior, although we only have a few highways, that does cause some hunters a lot of problems in that they may bump into another hunter. I've only bumped into a handful of them in 50 years of hunting, but it is getting busier along the few highways that we have. You have to know more about where you're going and, and uh, be willing to work a little harder to get off the roads and into some other back areas. But the comforting thing is that out in the wilderness, mostly along all the thousands of rivers that cut through the interior, it's loaded with rough grouse and in many areas, sharptail grouse. And all the burn areas. You know, we, uh, we suffer through about 100,000 lightning strikes here in Alaska every summer. And usually about one million acres or more burns every year. And that sounds pretty daunting, but it sure builds great habitat. Um, a couple of years after a, a wildfire is over, the grass starts to come back. The blueberries and the canikinik berries start to come back. And the sharptails come. And they love those areas, and there's, they've, they've been quite helpful to to keeping sharp tails here for some eleven thousand years. And they're all over the place out there, um, albeit there's a lot of space between them at times, you know. And walking through an old wildfire burn area is probably where most football coaches ought to take their team for a workout because it, it's pretty rough hunting, but. But it's it's comforting to know that it's out there. Uh, the sharp tails are expanding in Alaska right now. There's there's been sightings of sharp tails in the Arctic region just just beyond the Arctic Circle. And recently, uh, there's been more sharptails uh, being uh, seen and, and now even hunted south of the Alaska Range that separates the interior from south central where Anchorage, the Matsu area, the big population is. Uh, they used to have to come north all the time, but now there's, there's sharptails showing up in their grasslands down there. They're a pretty amazing creature. You know, and after the, the the wildfire burn areas grow up uh, to the point where it's no longer suitable for sharptails, it's too thick, well, then the rough grouse moves in. So it's a win-win deal for an upland hunter, really. So we're continually building lots of habitat, uh, lots of grouse. You may not be able to get to them easily, but big game hunters who float Rivers or, or fishermen who are floating rivers. Uh, I've done a lot of that myself, and you can find a lot of grouse out there along wilderness rivers. It's pretty amazing. And like you said, they've probably never seen a pointing dog or a, or a human.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But uh, that's but
0: that's our job is to introduce them to us <laughs> and uh, and the frying pan. So uh...
1: yes, if we are if we are so lucky, introducing them to the frying pan would be a that would be a good thing. That's. <laughs> Man, that's a that's really a lot. I, I appreciate you sharing all that, Jim. That's you're you've obviously you've spent some time in Alaska, and I want I want to rewind a little bit and ask you about your background. But I'm almost I'm hesitant to move on because you brought up so many so many neat points. Do you you mentioned that sharp tails were sort of expanding? Is there are, are there studies going on right now? Are there what indications do you have that sharp tail girls are expanding in Alaska? Well, I've been
0: doing it myself, informally, just by word of mouth and always asking questions. Yep. Um, that's kind of what I used to do for a living, was ask questions. But, uh, but Fish and Game now has, uh, around the last, I think, five, six years, they have finally uh, found the funds to hire two biologists, one down in the Mataniska Susitna Valley around Anchorage. And then one up here in the interior, where they specialize in, in birds and small wildlife, and they've been doing a lot of uh, a lot more rough grouse uh, drumming routes. We now a bunch of us with hunting bugs, help them with uh, summertime sharp-tailed grouse uh, flushing counts. That's kind of fun. Um,
1: how, do, how, how does that work, too. Jim?
0: Well, we uh, they have certain. Farms that they have designated as uh, as, as research areas, and sure. then they do transects. You know, they just uh, they have transects that will be recorded for forever. I guess. I mean, we're using ptarmigan transects when we go up in the in the mountains and d- use our dogs for flushing counts on ptarmigan. We do the same thing, and we have to walk these transects that were started, I think, in the '60s, which makes it a little difficult. I mean, I'm I'm digressing, but from grouse to ptarmigan, but. When you're up in the mountains, it's hard enough going across the, the tundra and climbing up steep bridges on these transects. <laughs> then now uh, there's places where streams have a- appeared and been uh, thick alder, that weren't there in the 60s, but we have to keep that, we have to walk that transect and keep the dogs as close as we can to that transect to make it sort of like a drumming route for rough grass.
1: Sure. Yeah. Same
0: drumming route, the same stops. The same direction so we do the same thing with tails. we'll we'll walk several miles uh, down one transect and try and keep a dog nearby and, and identify uh how many chicks are in a in a brood that that flush or we can see on the ground it's pretty cool
1: forget my That's ignorance a, what is a transect a transect it's just a, a, a heading okay
0: you know okay. They've, they've they've decided that it's a course that they've they've a route that they've decided got it this is we're going to walk this each time every year, just like a drumming route for rough grouse. You know, there's, there's 10 or 11 or 12 or so stops, you know, and a half mile apart for rough grouse. And after we do those, then we, then we go to, uh, well, we'll, we'll move to sharp tail Yep. and, uh, and go to these Lex and, uh, and count, the males and females on the lex and that's where i create a lot of great photographs
1: <laughs> yes.
0: and uh, and then in the summer we do the uh, the flushing counts of uh shark grouse we don't do any flushing counts on on rough grouse we just try and do it word of mouth on how many broods we're seeing around but uh, then we go up into the high country and do it on uh, mostly rock ptarmigan here in the interior and then down uh, a little lower in the interior uh, just more of the central area we Uh, do surveys for uh, willow again. it's pretty interesting but it's just a few people doing a a little bit of work for a huge area Right. right bigger than bigger than several states
1: yes absolutely i know from a just a scale perspective that's what always it's always shocking to me when i look at a map and typically you know you think going back and growing up and anytime you see a map oftentimes just because of the way that it's laid out you look at a map of the u.s they'll have alaska boxed off in its own image in the, in the top left and they brought it down and it's not to scale. So when you actually, I mean, now I spend enough time on, on satellite imagery and Google maps, when you actually go up and take a peek at the size of Alaska and compare it to a state like Texas, it's, it's mind blowing. It really is. The, sure. the the sheer size and scale of it and again i'm i'm probably not breaking news to anybody here alaska is big but <laughs> but that adds that also adds to some of the allure i think in the adventure and the thrill and it's why it sort of has the reputation that it does sure but
0: and, and other than ptarmigan really the interior region is where where it's really happening for uh, for upland hunting you know the size of the state you know it's just it's a little confusing because a lot of that is, is uh, southeast where there are no grouse, and, sure. and a lot of it up in the north is arctic where there are no grouse. And, uh, but you get down to the interior and, uh, where the boreal forest uh, rules, and uh, that's where they are, and they've been here for a long time. I, um, I recently did some research for an article I was doing, and you know, it, 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 it seems that back in the Ice Age, Alaska, or interior Alaska, and parts of the Yukon territory in Canada were the only places not under ice in North America. Wow. And yeah, and uh you know the uh the Bering Land Bridge, uh, yes. uh something like eighteen thousand years ago was there. But it but about 11,000 years ago, uh, there was a lot of climate change, probably like what we're going through now, but, uh, but water then covered the land bridge, so no more dinosaurs came across there. No more indigenous people traveled over there. But all the critters that were on this grassland, uh, they either perished or they had to adapt. And the sharp-tailed grouse adapted. And they went from total grassland birds to life in, in and around the boreal forest. And to me, it makes them a really awesome bird to hunt with your dogs. You know, a lot of your listeners know about sharptail hunting in the plain states. Yes. You know, they open grassland areas. But well, we find a lot of birds in grass, too. But they also frequent the woods, the aspen woods. Not quite as thick woods as you would find rough grouse normally. Although you could, but if you can imagine, you're hunting your dogs through an aspen forest, and up ahead they they break out into a, a park-like area. It's, it's, it's aspen and brush, but it's it's more sparse. There's a lot of there's a hole in the canopy, and there's sunlight coming in, and there's blueberries on the ground and kinikinik berries, and your dogs are on point, and you move in, shotgun at the ready you don't know what's gonna come up. You're hoping, <laughs> I guess, you're hunting rough grouse. It could be a rough grouse, but it could also be five, 10, 15, 20, maybe even more sharp grouse. I have one place that I hunt uh, like that, and I call it pandemonium. <laughs> and even the, even the dogs, when we're going in there, have that look, you know, like, oh man, we're going in. And they go in, they catwalk around, they get more cautious. And a lot of times when we go in there, there's nothing. But then there are many times when we go in there, and there are sharp tails coming up. I mean, cackling, and they're going to the left, the right, ahead of me, above me, at me. Of course, I often miss with both barrels in those situations. <laughs> but
1: yeah, but, it, but it, it's crazy.
0: It's crazy. So they, I like the fact that they're they're not rough grouse, but they're also in some of that woods and present different shots, something different than the. Open grassland
1: shots, Jim. That is that is a hell of a picture that you just painted for us, and I can I can tell you my heart rate was elevated <laughs> a little bit. Well, I, that, I've got some videos too that someday will be coming out too. So, oh, it's, excellent! It's,
0: it's it's crazy fun.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's very interesting that you mentioned that, and it really hits home for me personally because the sharp-tailed grouse is a bird that I've I've known about, but I really haven't paid much attention to even though I've now realized that there are very small local populations not too far away from my hometown of Duluth, Minnesota. And it's a bird Uh that with my first trip out west coming up here in just a couple of weeks, I'm I'm starting to pay more attention to it. And I'm looking into some projects, some habitat projects, because there used to be a lot more sharp tail habitat in this area. Uh And there is some really, really cool work being done by state and county forestry offices in order to bring some of that habitat back. And it's like you speak. You know, we're talking areas that are pretty much in the middle of rough grouse country, northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, where it is an area where you could, if you were on the fringe of that open park-like setting mm-hmm. you you could walk in there and you wouldn't know what was going to get up and what a neat opportunity i've had the chance to now see my dog point some sharptails and and hear them and see them get up and they are yep. they are an incredible bird absolutely oh they are they're you know, my first love will always
0: be the rough grass because i grew up hunting the rough grouse but uh but alaska's sharptails at least come in a real close second I and i sure enjoy them i have a blast and we And we live in a target-rich environment, so it's, it's not really that hard to get a daily limit of five birds. In the area that I usually hunt, and you can take more birds in another in other areas, the, the larger area of the interior, but up to 15. But I've, I've never had a desire to shoot 15 birds in a day. But uh, wow! But in this one area that I this large area uh, where there's a lot of uh, farms and whatnot and a lot of openings, uh, yeah, the limit is five a day, and it's uh, I, I'm always finding myself just holding off on shots. Trying to prolong the day's
1: hunt—it's crazy. We sometimes get that. We sometimes get that feeling with woodcock around here, at least when when the woodcock flights yeah. are in, and you're into birds yeah. early in the day. And and granted, the limit's only three, but those are the days where it is nice yeah. to to be able to have that feeling in the back of your mind that. I can hold off and I can wait for perfect dog worker. I can wait for just the right flush. And I mean, that's a luxury. That is, that is certainly not a right. Yes. That's a, that's a privilege and it's something to be thankful for. And at the end of the day, yes. if you don't get that third bird or whatever it is you're shooting for, I think, you know, most of us are pretty happy to have, to have hunted them all day. Yeah. You know, I recently I've, I've uh, seen
0: some articles in magazines that people have been writing about the, the slams again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, uh, We've got our own little slam thing we could do here but uh, I uh, matter of fact I'm, I'm working on an article at the moment that just as you called about uh, such a, a red letter day that I had and I do this often but this one day was just it was really awesome and i I I started in my favorite place just finishing my coffee as the sun was coming up over the granite mountains and I I put down two dogs and I was trying to figure out where I should start the hunt and the dog started it for me. And within a mile of hunting, I had perfect points, perfect shots, five sharptails in my bag, my limit. And I decided to move off into some thick aspen where a bird was pointed and it came up. And I don't usually shoot spruce grass because I don't like to eat them as much, but uh, I didn't know what it was. It rocketed through the trees and I shot and it was a spruce grouse Mm -hmm. Then we pushed on a little bit further looking for rough grouse and it was a good year for rough grouse and I took two rough grouse I came out of that uh, Aspen thicket I was going to head back to the truck and probably end my day early but I looked up at the mountains about 30 miles away and thought, you know, I ought to go ptarmigan hunting. (laughs) So I loaded up the dogs and uh, went up there and climbed around in the mountains for a little while and took three ptarmigans. And, uh, you know, it was, like I say, it was a high rough grouse here. So I I rested the dogs. I went back through town and got myself a coffee and a fresh pastry from the store there and drove down the road and I was feeling better. The dogs are feeling better. So I hit one of my favorite rough grouse covers and uh a place i call killer's place and uh i'll bet i put up 25 rough grouse <laughs> and i I took a few more and that's i don't usually take that many birds but i it was there were so many birds around that year so yeah it's possible to get a slam of sorts here um i guess if i could have found uh, a rock ptarmigan to go with the three willow ptarmigan that i shot it uh, would have been a better slam but uh yeah, i don't try for those things very often but it was kind of fun, and I guess uh, so. It's a, it's a possibility for folks to come up here and do that sort of thing too.
1: Jim, just give me a second here. I'm going to log into uh, kayak. dot com and book my plane ticket. All right? Okay. Yeah, right <laughs> now. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that you is. The wife, goodbye. <laughs> yeah. So, what a story. That's pretty cool. Talk about opportunity at your fingertips to be able to get out and do that on one outing. That's pretty awesome.
0: It is. You know, and I, I'm losing covers like anybody else. I used to have. I have one that's about 10 minutes from my door, and I hunted it for 20 years. I wrote about it in my book. It's it's simply called The Hill. And the place was, it's not a huge cover, not by Alaska standards for sure, but one of those places that I could, uh, oh, a dog, I would take one dog, maybe two dogs. It would take us an hour and a half or so to hunt it and get some good exercise doing it, but we would put up anywhere from oh 10 to maybe 12 rough grouse during that time and i tried to manage it pretty good and over the decades i have a lot of fond memories from that hill and you know of course now it's it's been improved so the little two track that required four-wheel drive i always walked it uh now is a nicer road and they've cut out all the alder along the edge and put some biking trails and walking trails and some kids move in the area and go through with ATVs and other people go in there and throw garbage on my hallowed spot. But mm. uh, I still go there to, to hike and uh, I do a lot, a lot of photography up there. My grouse are still there. I still know where the drummers are. And every spring I'm up there photographing drummers and, and several other places too. But, uh, um, you know, so I just have to branch out more. But that's, that's what happens everywhere. Wild yeah. hunters eventually lose their cover to either maturing habitat or human improvement, right? Or whatever they want to call it.
1: Yeah, some some changes and yeah. developments are more accepted, I guess, than others. But mm-hmm. like, just like the birds, we uh, we have to adapt as hunters too. Yeah, we do. And like I say,
0: Alaska, you know that uh, it, uh, we only have a few highways, so the more people that move into the state, they're concentrated along those highways, but. If you're willing to, to do the homework and well, just get off the road, uh, find some other places, or the one easy way here is no secret, really. And I'm not giving away anything special, is just to take a riverboat and go up, or a canoe and, and just get out on the rivers and a uh, raft. Uh, I used to do a lot of river rafting and uh, not so much anymore. I wait and go on a buddy's riverboat and go up and down the rivers now, and there's there's grouse all along them. So and you'll never see another hunter. Sure. Never.
1: Yeah, it's, that sound, that's very similar to to I would think even hunting back home in a lot of areas here where it's the same concept in that a little okay. short term upfront investment of time and effort usually pays out in the long term. Mm-hmm. So if you make yep. that extra effort to cover some distance, create some separation between you and the rest of the crowd, the easy access, oftentimes you can find little treasures back in the wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. So many
0: people nowadays though want to they want everything. They want a map of how to get there. They want to they do no homework. They uh, they expend no energy and, uh, and use it and don't sweat at all trying to find a place to hunt. They want me to or other hunters to tell them exactly where to go, how to get there, and what to do when you get there. And heck, do you, do you mind if I go with you? And uh, so <laughs> you, you need to be the student. That's my whole thing. Is you need to be the student. You need to uh, whenever I lecture on this stuff, I, you know I find out that. People don't even know what a rough grouse is or a sharp-tailed grouse. And I said, you first need to become the student. You need to read everything you can. You need to learn about the birds, watch them during the off-season, get involved in, in, in a group. You know, I'm always pushing the rough grouse society. And, uh, you know, on that point, too, there's plenty of societies. There's rough grouse society and the woodcock society, the quail forever, pheasants forever. Boy, there isn't much for the sharp-tailed grouse. And there's nothing for ptarmigan, but uh, I That's can understand a good point. that. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, you know that, that's an old man's view of it all, but uh, um, people need to do their own research and homework and I'll tell them certain things. Uh, around here people will say, how can I, you always find a lot of rough grouse, where are they? Oh, south facing hillside of Aspen uh, with an understory of cranberries. Have a nice hunt. <laughs> yeah. And,
1: yeah. And,
0: and that's really, that's, it's on every one of them. <laughs> You could find them. There they are. And yeah.
1: they're all over the place. And uh, yeah, well, I can tell you, Jim, that your self-labeled old man's view of things is is certainly appreciated by a younger man. <laughs> I guess you could say I'm I'm 32, so I am I'm, I'm uh, younger than you. I I surmise, given that you said that you've been in Alaska for 50 years. So, but I oh, appreciate yeah. that, and I think it's I think it's very well put in. I ask people a lot of questions. You know, if I'm going to a new area or, you know, my passion drives me to ask people a lot of questions. And I think it's somewhat in our nature to be inquisitive and, and maybe sometimes when people ask those really direct pointed questions. They're just, they're searching for that information, but you can do them a disservice by giving them too much. And I I like your perspective in that you're trying to encourage them to be the student because two things happen. Number one, you learn, you learn how to learn yourself. You learn how to read the cover, how to wander through the woods, how to discover that stuff on your own. And at the end of the day, it's all a whole lot more meaningful when somebody didn't, Draw you an X on a map and send you right into a certain place.
0: That's so very true. And I tell you, any young guy that I've ever taken along with me never wants to go a second day. <laughs> I uh, I've just I just turned sixty nine today, but uh, I take those young guys with me, and and they're like, dude, when do we stop for lunch? <laughs> I didn't bring any. I didn't bring any lunch. We don't stop. Well, when are we going back to the truck? Uh, see that sun? Well, when it gets down behind that mountain over there, we'll probably head back towards the truck. Dude, you're killing me here. That wasn't my intention, but if you die, I'll I'll tell folks where you're at.
1: Oh, man. I never go the next time. Well, Jim, if if I am fortunate enough to live to be 69 years old and I am causing (laughs) younger men and or women to have that same reaction, I'll be a very happy man. You gotta stay busy. Yep,
0: do those push-ups every morning and hike and uh, stay active. Always stay moving. I hope to be doing this at eighty. You can call me for another podcast when I'm eighty, and uh, we'll see how we're going then. I'll
1: call. I will call you before you're eighty, Jim. I can guarantee you that. But I will. I hope to be calling you when you're eighty, and and I hope that we're still doing the Project Upward podcast. That would be great. Yeah,
0: that'd be pretty cool. It's actually that's a pretty good uh, podcast. It's a whole you know that there's, there's a lot of good information uh, getting out there now. We need to involve new and young hunters. Yes. Or it's all going to go away. Yeah.
1: Yep, I agree. And and we've been, you know, we've been growing this thing. There's some other podcasts out there that I think are doing a really good job and we're we're getting to the point where we've got thousands of people are listening to these podcasts every week every time we post an episode and yeah. we're starting to get feedback and we're getting questions and we're you know we're, we're we're creating interest and I think everybody out there doing that you're doing it with your with your photos Jim which we're going to talk about I mean it's that's the kind of stuff that well, you know love or hate social media there are good things about it and there's there are good things about the interconnectedness of today's society, and we just have to make sure that we focus on those good, positive things. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I, I can get as frustrated as anybody
0: on social media, on Facebook, about uh, politics and whatnot, but I, I choose not to talk about it. it. I guess it bugs me like it bugs anybody else, but I just I just go dig into my archives and post some more photographs, whether they were done last year or, or yesterday. It doesn't matter. I'll, uh, I'll post them again and just get people's attention on stuff like that. But uh, yeah, we do need to gather up some new hunters. I, you know, they, unfortunately I see a lot of the new hunters today are just, they just drive around and shoot birds on the ground or in the trees and shoot as many as they can. And yeah, I had an example, I had an example of that recently. And boy, we see a lot of these young fellas out there that have, they just come to Alaska and they want to go hunting. And at had one fellow on Facebook post a, a deal where he'd, he'd found a, what he called a covey of uh, of grouse, he wasn't sure if they were rough grouse or not, but he killed five, and, and he thinks one of them might be a spruce grouse. Well, I didn't want to embarrass him much on, on social media, so I, I sent him a message and contacted him, and uh, I let him know what he did, and uh, and I said yeah. he sent me a picture, and and these were these were young birds. He couldn't even tell they had a it wasn't much of a fan tail at all. Yeah, and uh, he actually he actually shot seven rough grouse chicks and one rough and one sharp tail grouse, and. I, uh, I explained to him, I said, look, Grasshopper, um, I'm willing to help you out and guide you along the way. I see that you're a soldier. I'll offer to buy you a cup of coffee, maybe even buy you lunch. Why don't we meet? And I'll tell you everything you want to know about grouse hunting and, uh, and kind of show you the the error of your ways there that day. He realized then that he, had, he probably should have let some of them go. And I said, well, you should have, but that's okay. We'll talk about that. He had not taken me up on it yet, but I'm willing. Yeah. But uh, People come to Alaska and they were just, you know, I've talked to a lot of young soldiers and I said, what do you want to do while you're here? And he said, I'm going to shoot a polar bear, a grizzly bear, a black bear, a caribou, a moose. You know, go down the list, you know, and I said, well, that's a lot to accomplish in two years, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and seeing as all polar bears are, it's illegal to hunt them, but uh, good luck. Um, <laughs>
1: but,
0: uh, but then when they go out grouse hunting, it's uh, it can be it can be pretty ugly at times, you know. It's not just an old-timer driving along and taking a grouse for the pot. It's, yeah. it's a truckload of them, and uh, I don't hear the battle cry, grouse, but they all bail out, and and start blasting away and it gets dangerous and, and nasty pretty quick but they need to be educated
1: yeah absolutely and i i think it's admirable what you did in that situation and reaching out and offering at least offering to make that connection and you know i hope that he takes you up on it because he could be he oh, yeah. could be the next best advocate for for grouse well we're doing
0: a uh, what we call a bow becoming an outdoors woman program in here in Alaska for oh yes oh I don't know the last fifteen years or so and and I'm not always called to talk to uh, the gals about grouse hunting but uh, it's there's a whole bunch of gals that are really interested in this stuff and let me give you an idea of one night. It was kind of a fun night. I mean, it was an ugly night. I was going out to this camp, out this Boy Scout camp that's way out, out of town and up in the woods on this lake. And it was a, it was a, literally the dark and stormy night. It was miserable out. The wind was blowing. The rain was coming down. I was going up this muddy trail, this muddy two-track to get to this camp. And I was thinking, boy, these ladies are going to be in a bad mood. But as I got closer, I heard the laughter. And I saw women with soaking wet hair and, you know, some reindeer, some not, just Sloshing along, heading to this pavilion where I was going to make my presentations. And uh, I'll tell you, when I walked into that place, <laughs> I looked out. There must have been fifty or sixty women out there, and they were—they looked battle-worn, but every one of them was smiling. And I turned around and looked behind me, and you should see the food they prepared. Mm-hmm. And I just—it was—it was my time. I'm standing up there in front of them all, and it just got very quiet. And I looked from the food back to them just looked at them and I said, is this heaven? <laughs> These You gals, you gals are amazing. Yep. And they had the greatest questions. They had more excitement about grouse hunting and dogs and how to clean a grouse and eat it. And we need more of those kinds of programs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I've, I've seen some of them in this area. I've seen them be very successful. And I think, like you said, I think we, can, we can't have enough of them, really. That's
0: correct. And for kids. But I don't know. A lot of kids aren't interested in this stuff anymore. They don't want to read anyhow. Too, I say that. I, I see that a lot. Too. So I think your podcast and, uh, and photographs on Facebook or wherever that might be the key to success. There, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think that is. Yeah. An, I think it's an interesting point. In that, there's so much. There's so much content, and there's so many different vehicles of delivering that content that I think our goal really at Project Upland is just to sort of be everywhere so that no matter no matter who's listening or where they're listening or reading or viewing or whatever way that they want it that is their preferred method we want to be there because again like you said we're trying to reach out and touch everybody well that's an excellent point that can be everywhere and you're not going to get everyone, but you'll, you'll touch a few here and there. And that's what matters. One kid at a time. Right.
0: Yeah. you know, I, I don't know if you were going to ask me about my early beginnings, but I, I remember back as a kid, I, you know, I didn't have Google. I didn't have any of this stuff. And I came from a non-hunting family, but somehow around town, I'd heard something, seen something and got interested in hunting. And, uh, I I have an article sitting at a magazine right now about this. I called it Big Birds because us kids, we were 12, 13 years old, we would go to a place we called The Woods. And this is in upstate New York, uh, along the... Hudson River. And we, we felt it was a million miles away from New York City. We didn't, to go there would be very a, a big trip, a big adventure. But uh, so we would go down to the woods and we would stalk cottontail rabbits and squirrels and, and look for deer. You know, we hardly ever saw one there. But every once in a while, there would be this explosion in the brush that would spook us. <laughs> and now and then we would see one and we didn't know what they were. We just called them big birds. And then, of course, came along the pellet rifle, and I became the great hunter that I was, and uh, sneaking around and and then one day, uh, there was a rustling in the in the brush. The older I get, the higher this grouse gets up off the ground but when uh, I shot him, but <laughs> i'm sure I'm sure he was standing there staring at me and, uh, <laughs> yeah and, and i I hit him, and that uh, he fluttered on the ground, and I wondered, well, now what do I do? And so I took him home, and the uh, one of my neighbors. I took him over to him because I knew he was a hunter, and I said, hey, Andy, what have I got here? This is a big bird we've been looking at, and he says, Jim, you got yourself a partridge, a mm-hmm. rough grouse. <laughs> wow, those are good eating. So he told me how to clean it, and My mother begrudgingly cooked it for me, and uh, I guess I was hooked. And uh, not too long after that, I got my first shotgun, and the rest is
1: history. I'm so glad you brought that up, Jim, because I, I did have it on my, I always like to ask everybody where they got their start. And we have segued off into sharing stories, which is fantastic, but I am glad you brought that up. So you were you were in New York at the time, and I know you had mentioned you had been in Alaska yep. for 50 years. So eventually, something led you to Alaska.
0: Yeah, look on the reading portion. You now, if I was if I was a good boy and did my chores or whatever my mom wanted me to do, she finally begrudgingly bought me. Uh, subscriptions to each of the, uh, eventually, each of the three big uh, magazines, Out to Life, Field and Scream, and Sports Field. And some of the big trouble that I got into in my research days, like I say, we had no Google, nothing else. We just mm-hmm. had old guys to talk to if they would be willing to talk to us. And, uh, and I had these magazines. And the trouble I would get into at home was, uh, you know, I'd be sent to my room, lights out, and I would grab up my little Cub Scout Flashlight, and I'd be under the covers. And I guess I should have been looking at a girly magazine or something like the other kids would be, but uh, <laughs> I didn't have any. But, uh, but I did have those big three magazines, and that's when I I would read everything I could find over and over again about rough grouse hunting. And you know, I read Spiller and Woolner and Tapley and all those big names and little names too, and just fell in love with those birds and Alaska. It was. I, I still wanted to hunt big game, but I, I wanted to come to Alaska, and I didn't think of Alaska as a bird hunting place, but I kept hunting birds all through high school, and then uh, uh, later on after high school, I went, started to go to college, but then they had this, uh, this little program going on from Uncle Sam, so I went down and raised my right hand, and I did two years in the Army, and I decided I'm going to live in Alaska after that was over, and came here to Alaska, and you know, for me, it was big game hunting at first. Oh yeah, I shot a moose, a caribou, and you know, started doing all this big game hunting. But then I would see rough grouse. Oh, and then I saw a ptarmigan in the high country, and I thought, wow. So I started doing a little bird hunting. And I remember one day, I was riding my horse through the Aspen forest, and I started putting up one rough grouse after another. And I got right back into it, and then it, it, it took over my life again. And I'll still hunt big game now and then. I'll I'll go out and try and get a moose, maybe one
1: or two days next month, but mostly I'll be bird hunting till next year you uh you mentioned we were we were messaging a little bit last week you mentioned you were going out in the backyard to shoot your recurve you were going to try to you were going to (laughs) try to take a moose with a recurve right well yeah that's another one of those
0: things that i've come back to you know that uh you know i somehow i i picked up a recurve when i was a young kid a young 14 15 year old and and uh i guess i saved up enough money from working my paper route to get that but and started deer hunting and then put it down and then then, again when i came to alaska it was all with a rifle but I started hunting with a compound bow after that, and sure. and then that wasn't good enough. I I took a moose and a caribou, and I thought it just wasn't rewarding. So I, uh, I I eventually I actually went back to a recurve and had it stolen, my custom bow, and I got mad. So I just I just bow hunted for the last twenty years, nothing but or excuse me, bird hunted. And then uh, recently I just I looked at all those arrows I had over in the corner, and I thought. You know, I had an old bear recurve bow, and I strung it up and took it out in the yard. And I, I put four arrows right where I wanted them in the bow, and I thought, I am going to do some more of this. So now I'm, I'm back into it, big time. <laughs> I'll probably hunt a total of two days for big game, because uh, every time I'm out hunting for big
1: game, I think I should be bird hunting. <sighs> you and me both, Jim. That's that's more and more. <laughs> I I do enjoy whitetail deer hunting here in northern. Minnesota, but the more and more I do it, the more and more I think, "Geez!" Especially if the weather is just right and we don't have too much snow on the ground yeah. yet, you think, "What? What a what a good grouse hunting day this would be!" Well,
0: my last moose I took, I took in a bow hunting area around town here, and it was again at my one of my favorite covers, and uh, and I just I'd go in there with with uh, with the dog to hunt grouse, and I'd see this moose. <clears throat> think, oh, I should be over here hunting that moose. Nah, I'm going to just, I just go on bird hunting. After two or three days of this, I still kept catching glints of this, of this moose. And I thought, I better get this done or I'm never going to see that moose again. And so the next morning I went up there and I stood there as the sun was coming up and uh, thinking, man, I should be grouse hunting. And uh, and then I, this moose appeared and I took the moose and immediately went right back to grouse hunting the next day. And, and, uh, <laughs> so I suppose this September I've got a plan, though, that the days that I hunt moose, whether a rifle or, or bow, I'll do that early in the morning before daylight until, oh, I don't know, early morning, mid-morning maybe. sure And then I'll just zip home and grab a dog or two, and I'll go rough grouse hunting for the afternoon. And then in the evening, I'll go back and hunt moose again until dark. So
1: that's my plan. Sounds like a plan to me, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a burning question for you, Jim. We talked a little bit sure. about your start now, which is back in upstate New York. And, you know, it was the love for the birds that got you into hunting, which is a very similar story to myself. I, my dad was a hunter, but we didn't do a ton of hunting. And he made the mistake of of taking me out one day with my uncle and my cousin. And I don't think he was expecting it, but I saw a rough grouse flush out from under a little spruce tree. I can still picture it. And nobody even fired a gun. It was one of those moments where you've seen it hundreds of times, I'm sure, Jim, where that bird gets up and it's gone before you could even have, think to shoot. And I just remember watching that bird fly away and it's, I don't know, it did something to me and and, and it settled in and and that was it. And so it it was my love and my passion for the rough grouse that actually really fueled me in those early days and i didn't get into the bird dogs until later in life so that's my question to you is when did the dogs enter the picture jim well again during those early days reading those
0: big three magazines under the covers with the cut scout flashlight that you know i I would always see the dogs and wonder well i'd like to have a bird dog probably because well I, i wasn't allowed to have a dog and i didn't have a dog so all boys want a dog, but I probably wanted it because I thought it would be easier. But uh, I don't know that I, I had the great love for dogs at the time, but uh, but I always wanted a dog. And, and mostly I saw pictures of setters, English setters. Mm-hmm. And I always thought I was going to have a, a Llewellyn setter. But then I also saw Brittany's. And, you know, when I was here in Alaska, I had, you know, I, I had a heck of a, a busy career. I, uh, I spent the best part of 30 years with the Alaska State Troopers. And I investigated all their major crimes. And I was all over the state all the time. I was all over the United States and chasing murderers in Miami and L.A. and New York and wherever. Probably in your backyard, too. But, uh, but I, uh, I hunted birds, but I... I I just didn't have the time to raise a dog, but probably well, it's over twenty years ago. I finally I I had an opening. Somebody had a pup coming, a Brittany pup and and couldn't keep that pup and I said sure I'll take it, wrote a check and took the pup and didn't know much about it but I started to learn and uh, hooked up with a pro trainer who actually trained labs. At, uh, but he's a very, he's the ultimate dog man though and hes he could do anything with a dog and, and boy we just started training my old buddy and and then I helped my friend Tom train some other dogs and then I got another dog for myself and it just kept going and so now I'm, I'm down to three Britneys but I I'm trying to talk my wife into letting me have another pup but. <laughs> it's not working so well
1: right now. <laughs> I'm having that same conversation, Jim. I'm I'm trying to angle for puppy number 2 here. Mine's my I have a setter, he's 4 years old and, and I'm looking to head to number 2, so I, I feel your pain a little bit. <laughs>
0: well, I have to because I wear them out, you know. I mean, it's uh, Yeah. you know, starting Saturday when I'm hunting sharptails, I'll have the GPS on the dogs and and I'm going to see that I have walked somewhere between 5 and 8 miles for the day and the dogs will have gone 21, 24, 25 miles and i can't do that day in and day out i have to rest them i like to work two dogs at a time but so now i'm with three dogs and one is older and he's got a little bit of arthritis so that limits my uh my ability to get out there maybe it'll make me hunt moose a little bit more but uh no a guy needs to have a a good uh stable full of dogs that so he could rest and uh you know and, and keep up his training uh abilities on too i guess and stay busy but uh yeah. I don't know. We'll,
1: see. well, one thing, one thing you mentioned the other day, I think you had made mention one of your pictures posted. uh you were out roading the dogs. I'm just kind of curious because this has been, I've been doing more conditioning with my dog this year than I ever had before, and I'm curious what what do you do for conditioning for the dogs.
0: Well, it's another one of those lucky deals. Again, living where I do. Fairbanks is getting busier. Uh, I can get grumpy because there actually is rush hour traffic now, and uh, they're building more roads. And But on the outside of town, about, oh, I'd say 30 years ago, maybe longer, but they built a, oh, it's got to be a 20-mile long dike, you know, just a raised dike. It's got a two-track up on top of it, uh, and uh, I go out there, it's about... Oh, well, it's not 10 minutes from my home, and I just uh, throw uh, the, the dogs in the back of my little Jeep, and I go out to that dike, and I let them down, and I used to run with them. Sure. But uh, my right knee doesn't allow me to do that anymore. I still do a little bit of running here and there, but uh, not much, well, mostly hiking. But So now I just follow behind them. They know how they got the drill down pretty good. They stayed at the front of my Jeep. They stay up on that two-track. They're not allowed to go off the side where there's a dirt road. Down along the bottom it doesn't hardly ever get traffic, but still, at all, uh, they're allowed to make little forays off the the other side, the wood side. But basically, they'll do four or five, six miles, and sometimes they find <clears throat> find sharptails or rough grouse along the way to point. Um, that's it's been a lot of fun. They get their exercise. I'll do it. Uh, oh, I don't know, four or five times a week. So it works out pretty good for them. They stay in great shape.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting how quickly, you know, dogs are such creatures of habit, especially if you go same place, same setup. It's amazing how quickly they will pick up something like that and realize, hey, this is what we're here to do. And that's obviously yep. very nice that you can get a bird contact here or there to, to keep the excitement level up and keep them having fun. That's, that's a great way to condition the dogs.
0: Oh, yeah, and sometimes uh, I didn't do it this year, but just about every year i I trap pigeons locally and, and I'll just go out and set some pigeons and use electronic launchers, and I'll tighten up the dogs a little bit, but they they kind of like it, but you know a good seasoned dog is they know the jig's up, you know they know it's all training and make believe <clears throat> so they it's probably not quite as exciting to them, but uh, yeah, uh, and then I, I use those pigeons, I'll help other people with their dogs too. So, um, but I didn't do it this year, and already there, I mean, I, I take them out for the flushing counts and whatnot, so they get that work too on wild birds. So, uh, now they're good to go. I've, I've already had them out on uh, grouse and ptarmigan, and they're good to go, they uh, they find them. Point them, hold them, they stay steady to the flush. And at the beginning of the season, they do a pretty good job at staying steady to the shots. But as the season grows on, and, and you know, it's, it's a matter of competition too. You can do a whole lot more with one dog.
1: Yes, absolutely. Than you can with,
0: with with two or more there's there's a great competition going on i'm getting that dead bird before you get it yep but i used to worry about that but anymore uh, if you ever see one of my videos you'll hear me chuckling because i don't really care you know if they break at the (laughs) at the the fall um you know the the worst thing that could happen is that they'll put up some other birds and i won't get a shot at them but again i'm i live and hunt in a in a uh, target rich environment yeah uh, so i just prolongs my hunt and i get to hunt on a little bit further works for me
1: (laughs) and that's all that matters jim that's all that matters i appreciate that it's it's good good perspective and that's that is one of the questions i i always find interesting to ask people and i mean that's part of the beauty of it is you get to do it the way that you want to do it especially if you put in the time and put in the investment to raise and train your own dogs you get to hunt over those dogs exactly how you want to hunt over those dogs yeah
0: and i spent so much time doing it with them too especially after i retired from the from the state troopers. I, you know, I, I mean, I, I write for magazines and you know, I'm working on another book here and there, but I'm not too serious about it. But, uh, and I, I photograph a lot, but I have a lot of time to work with the dogs and, uh, and go out and, and study birds too. You know, it's, uh, it's, I'm forever the student, you know, biologists, uh, sometimes I think they get tired of seeing me, you know, they say, oh, here he comes down the hall again. <laughs> we get an answer to, to one question and, uh, and I've got 10 more. <laughs> and, uh, but that's, that's how I solved major cases, too, you know. I,
1: yeah, that's I definitely was, in your I mean, line of work.
0: I was uh, asking questions and getting answers right up until the jury came back. So, uh, And I never lost one at trial, so I guess it pays off in the end.
1: Well, Jim, I want to ask you about your photography a little bit because that is one of the things that I think if people are familiar with you, that's probably one of the things that, that would be uh, more visual to them and they would have maybe seen your pictures on Facebook because you post quite a few of them. How did you get into photography?
0: Well, you know, it started pretty much with this girlfriend I had back in New York, and uh, I think she's cooking dinner down t- downstairs right now. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> poor woman's still with me. But uh, <laughs> she she was kind of interested in it uh, more than I was. But uh, I remember being uh, dragged up to a fella's house, and uh, where we lived was like I say it was a, it was a good train ride up from New York City. But it uh, it was. Somewhat rural and suburban-like, you know, but uh, there were some, some rich people there, too, you know, that uh, had these little places. And this one guy was a, uh, a photographer for Life magazine, and he kind of got me interested in it, uh, you know, it was mostly uh, Gail took me there to, for her interest, but it, it piqued my interest. And then later on, when I, when I made my move to Alaska and became an Alaska state trooper, I had to take pictures. Uh, as a young uniform trooper, I had to take uh, pictures of accidents and things. And gosh, we had four by five speed graphic cameras. Good lord! And uh, then, then we moved on to thirty-five millimeter film cameras, and I got more interested. But then I was I was finishing up college, and I, I needed to get these. Uh, these elective uh, credits or whatever, and uh, I thought oh, I'll take a photography class, and I ended up taking every class that they had and darkroom classes and the whole thing. And I, I really—that's when it started. And uh, I was doing my own crime scene photography as an investigator. Um, I was doing I was doing a lot of outdoor photography, wildlife photography. I even did uh, photojournalistic things for the newspapers. So in my spare time, so it got kind of crazy. And then I got teamed up with a couple of uh, mentors. You know that uh, yeah that that really <laughs> I went into. I went into the big time then and started selling the magazines and, uh, you know, being a homicide investigator, you know, you have to have other things to think about, you know, otherwise, you know, I'm, bring, I'm bringing, I'm this information about these monsters home with me all the time. It's, uh, I don't talk about it, but it was it's within me. So I have to have something else to, uh, occupy my thoughts and sure it became wildlife wildlife photography and oh and i did i do a lot of fly fishing too so that's uh i failed to mention that but i uh that was a a strong interest for me for a while in photography i was writing and and photographing fly fishing for a long time for different magazines and uh uh, that was before the dog days and uh um yeah I, i got crazy about photography and and uh and one day, I just decided that, uh, oh, I don't know, back in the 80s, but uh, mid-80s or early 80s, I was sitting on the deck uh, after a long day and reading an outdoor magazine and having a cold beer, and I thought, you know, I can write this stuff. Well, it turns out I couldn't, but I tried. <laughs> and I got several rejections, and I learned from those, and I went back and just kept at it, and then I started selling articles here and there, and then more photographs and it became quite the business and then just for the experience of it i didn't really want to do it but i i I had plenty of room in in a big house that i made a a a large portrait studio and i did a lot of those for a long time so i could so i could learn that aspect of photography uh portraits and then some commercial work and uh i even shot about 50 weddings and uh wow i'll never do that again but uh, (laughs) but i wanted to do it for the experience and uh then I just settled in with writing for magazines and about fly fishing and bird hunting and and whatever, uh, and it's been pretty good for
1: me. That's very interesting and and it's detailed and and thoughtful, Jim. And if I've learned anything from chatting with you for the last hour is that you don't, you don't tend to do things half-assed. You tend to, uh, you tend to, you tend to get into things full steam ahead and, and you do your research and you do things right. And, and again, with the photography, it, it's, you know, I now know that it was, it was something you wove into your career and your passions and all of that work. And what you've done is, is evident in, in the photos that you post today. Cause I mean, they are, I, I, I just think some of them are absolutely phenomenal in the way that you capture colors and light and, obviously the subject matter is of a high interest to me so i'm very biased but i just i love i love your photography jim <laughs> well i'm glad you like it i'm glad you
0: like it but you're right about me though i'm, I'm known as the guy that you know he'll, he'll be a little bit uh standoffish at first about something new but once i've touched my toe to the water and like it i don't step in i dive in and i stay in and uh, i've done that with everything i decided to fly airplanes and went over and got my license and then Oh man, I I got into that enough that I I uh, went ahead and got my uh, my instrument rating and whatnot and flew for the state a little bit when I wasn't chasing bad guys and oh gosh I wasn't even I wasn't even happy enough just riding a horse you know I just had to I had to learn to train horses and that's where I learned about a lot about dog training was oh, yeah. training horses and you uh, know and then and, and that wasn't enough so I had to oh well, I learned to team rope and <laughs> and then my brother from another mother is an Idaho cowboy so. Uh, I would find myself down there and uh, roundup time, and, and I'm a wannabe cowboy too. So, yeah, I guess I don't uh, do anything slightly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Jim, I'm, I'm reminded of the old saying about uh, old and bold pilots in Alaska. So where do you fall on that spectrum?
0: (laughs) Well, I had to sell my airplane, so uh my wife uh had had enough of that expense so uh so I guess I'm no longer flying unless I can find somebody to let me get back in the seat of their airplane or whatnot. Although I I keep thinking about uh I I cruise the airports now and then, you know, and and, uh I don't know, I could get back into that and I don't own a horse anymore either, but I'm my daughter and I are thinking about getting a couple, so I don't I don't know. I, I doubt I'll fly again, but uh, I won't die in an airplane crash, at least uh, not with me at the controls. And, uh,
1: <laughs> well, that, That's good. I, I, I could imagine that a guy like you might have visions in his head of some far-off uh, you know, burning that, uh, has the connect connect berries oh, yeah. coming up and some sharp tails that have never seen a human. I could see you doing a backcountry hunt. Oh man, I'm telling you, I could use
0: an airplane right now, but I didn't have enough excuse back then. But, uh, but now for ptarmigan and sharp tails and even rough grouse, I mean, I used to land on gravel bars and stuff. That's another reason I get rid of my airplane because I was landing in places that once you got out of the airplane, it was very hard to walk. And I thought, you know, I don't know how much longer I can keep pushing this, but, uh, but there's places you could land an airplane, I'd be up in the Arctic, and I mean, you could hunt ptarmigan until, well, you just you just had too much of it and you could never do it again. I mean, you could just, it's it's target-rich, yeah. but they move around, so you have to be mobile. You can't just go into the Arctic, land someplace, and expect to find ptarmigan every day. Because, well, I'm getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but ptarmigan have red meat. I tell all the young guys, ptarmigan has red meat, really red meat. And a rough grouse doesn't. Why is that? I don't know. Nature? Uh, no. One flies a lot. Mm-hmm. The ptarmigan. Yep. They need that oxygen in those muscles. They fly all the time. And because of that, now it, there's nobody up here really guides for ptarmigan because they're just too unreliable. Like a guide can't take your money and then constantly go out and not find ptarmigan. Um, it's hard. Sure. Uh, because... If they don't like it, if I take them to a favorite spot, to, uh, take a friend to a favorite spot to hunt ptarmigan and so well, there's none here. Where are they? Said, well, they're on that mountain over there. Well, we can't go there. Yeah, tough. <laughs> you know, that's how they are. They're, uh, ptarmigan are like salmon. It's too bad you weren't here yesterday. Too bad you can't be here tomorrow. <laughs>
1: Sounds like a lot of animals.
0: Through. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to find them, but quite with an airplane, you could hop around on those gravel bars up there. Sure. Mm. Wow. Oh, gosh.
1: Well, one other <laughs> thing I want to ask you about, maybe briefly, Jim, but there are some beautiful-looking shotguns that make their way into some of your photography. What, uh, What is what is your affliction when it comes to shotguns? What do you like to carry?
0: Oh, I like side-by-sides. I uh, My first gun was a... Uh, the side-by-side. My dad bought it for me, really? it me but uh, I was 12 or 13 years old, and he knew I had this hunting bug so we went to the Sears Roebuck store, and I wanted a 16-gauge because Bert Spiller and some others said that was the greatest gauge, And mm-hmm. but I uh, I couldn't swing that, so I Dad bought me a, uh, a J.C. Higgins 20-gauge uh, side-by-side with two triggers, and I thought it was the most beautiful thing in the world. But uh, I, uh, I just wrote an article about that, too, this old gun. I, I eventually took it out hunting up here for the first time in, oh, gosh, 40-something years and found out how badly the barrels were regulated. But, oh, uh, no. But I love side-by-sides, and, you know, I've, I've got a few over-unders, and I hunted with one for a long time. And they're, uh, they're way in the back of the safe right now. And uh, I just started getting into side by sides. I started with actually what, what was my dream gun. I couldn't get the the highest level. I didn't have Family Guy. I didn't have ten thousand dollars to f- flop down on a uh, on a custom uh, bespoke Arietta. But sure. I got one that was very close to my exact measurements. Made a, uh, a few alterations to it, and that was always my go to gun. It's a sixteen gauge. Uh, Arietta side lock ejector, two triggers, twenty eight inch barrels, weighs six pounds three ounces, and it's a wand. Skeet one, skeet two, all I need. Uh, an ounce of seven and a half shot, you're good to go.
1: Sounds like pure and, joy uh, to me.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> then i collected a few others, but uh, but sure. mostly what you've been seeing lately, uh, the the real pretty ones are. Uh, well, I'm, like like a lot of guys, I I saw. Connecticut shotgun when they came out with their RBL model. And I thought, you know, I should own an American made shotgun, a new one. I should support Tony Galazon and and his efforts. But I missed that 20 gauge uh, um, opening. But then they came out with the 28 gauge and I'd been communicating with Mike McIntosh and a few others. And, uh, before Mike died and, uh, about the 28 gauge, and I've been reading all this stuff, and I thought, you know, I could probably never hit anything with a 28 gauge under six pounds, but, and I, I was in the chips, I was doing another job after my retirement, so I, I, I ordered one, and I had it made with nice wood, and after I got the 28, I didn't even shoot it, but he came out with another 20, so I said, well, why don't you give me one of those? <laughs> and so i got the 20 and the 28 and, and those are the pretty guns that i've got the, the area is getting like me a little long in the tooth and uh like i have thinning and gray hair it uh, it has most of its blowing off and uh and a few nicks here and there but uh i've started using these two rbls quite a bit lately and uh, got a few other side by sides too but they're i don't know keep them back in the dark too and uh I started shooting that twenty eight gauge a lot. I can't believe it. It's such an easy gun to carry. Yeah. And I thought I would when I when I shot some skeets, I, I wasn't doing very well. I mean I'd hit, I don't know, twenty, twenty one out of twenty five maybe, but you know, I just it was too light. But when I shoot at birds, I was hitting everything I shot at. I took a double on rough grouse with it one day. Uh, a lot of scotch doubles. I'm taking doubles all the time with it on shark tails and ptarmigan. and I thought why carry anything else? So uh I've hardly carried the twenty gauge RBL so I'm gonna force myself to do it this year. So you'll see it in a few pictures if I get anybody to take a picture of me.
1: <laughs> well, that sounds okay. good. I look forward to seeing those, Jim. They are they are some they are beautiful guns and you know, again it's it's another layer yeah. of this whole uh upland world. That fuels us and drives us, and it's it's fun to talk about. I like it. That did, yeah. did a podcast yeah. last week. We talked all about side-by-sides and shotguns, and it's just another thing to talk about, and yeah. that's why we love it.
0: Well, you know, another gun that caught my eye for a long time, and I, I thought it would be, I was going to buy it as the ultimate rough grouse gun. I was going to have it cylinder, improved cylinder, because I'd, I'd learned the value of, of cylinder in, in the rough grouse woods. Yeah but there was two guns out there I looked at one was a pulley side by side and it was lightweight and, and built nicely. I heard a few things about them but, but I didn't that worried me but I'd also heard about the Merkel 1620 yes a 16 gauge on a 20 gauge frame so I, uh, I made a deal and I bought a killer 1620 and I never did change the chokes I didn't make it my ultimate rough grouse gun. I already had that in the Arietta and, and I and I still have it with the other guns that I have but I, I left the choke in that a little tighter. I think they're probably tighter than the improved cylinder and modified that are on there, but I've been using it for my late season gun and uh, for sharp tails. And that last week of September and into the first week of October, it may sound shocking to people in the lower 48 states when you still have all the beautiful leaves on your trees, but mm-hmm. that's when the snow is threatening here. <laughs> that's when we have our, our dark and windy days and spitting a little bit of snow. The last of the swans and the and the geese and the cranes are going overhead. And the sharptails are on the move. See, our our sharptails, they'll migrate away from their summer-fall grounds up to 50 miles or so away to the uh, the foothills of the mountains where they overwinter. And about that time, well, they're all big. They say our Alaska sharptails are a little bigger than all the rest of them. And there's a lot of them in there that weigh two pounds or so. And and they're pretty flighty. There's groups of 20, 30, 40 of them. And uh, I like it. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's feast or famine. But when the dogs find them, it can be chaos. Just uh, wild flushing birds all over the place, and uh, it's pretty fun. So that's when I take the merkel out, and little tighter jokes, but same one ounce of seven and a half. And I usually take my five birds pretty quickly until all of a sudden there are none. Yeah. And uh, the snow comes, and the little skiff of it covers the food, the knick berries they're so fond of. And then I uh, I turn to rough grouse until... Later in October, when it gets too cold and too snowy, and just before the trappers start to go out and set their traps, sure. then I'm out of the woods.
1: Yep. Yep. Makes sense.
0: Then I turn to ptarmigan and hunt ptarmigan with the dogs. So, as much as I can during the real cold months. Of the winter, but then come February, late February, March, and April, oh, life is good again. And uh, the dogs and I get out there to the high country and get on snowshoes, uh, and uh, we mostly hunt rock ptarmigan, and they're a lot of fun. And I'll I'll hunt those right up until well, April 30th is when it closes. Um, they they tend to be mat- pairing up at that time, though. So if I can find and it's easy to identify a male from a female, and they'll stand their ground. The males will stand their ground then. So if it's a lone male, I might take one or two. But uh, the, the limit has dropped down from 15 to, or 20, is it? I don't know. I don't take that many, but down to five. But even then, I don't, I don't take that many. I, I'll take one or two. Sure. And uh, it's a great time. And it, I do a lot of photography that time of year, too. But yeah, right up till April 30th, I'll be in the high country. So April April thirtieth is day.
1: the end of of your season.
0: Yes, it is. I know it seems awfully late, and it is. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't call me that day because that's where I'll be. I'll be way out of cell phone, gone back where I normally am, and uh, that's way out.
1: I will. And, uh, I will make a day. note of it, Jim, and I will not call you until after <laughs> April thirtieth. <30th. laughs> the next
0: day, call me. I'll be depressed. I want to talk to somebody
1: about hunting. We can. We can. Uh, I can help you fill that void. I'd love to. <laughs> quickly i get we go out to photograph
0: all the, the spring breeding season for all the birds too so that, that yeah. i still yeah. have my my fix yep
1: now correct me if i'm wrong but the most recent issue of shooting sportsman that was your photo of a drumming rough grouse right oh it was that was a special rough
0: grouse that old boy was pretty good to me i got to photograph him uh two seasons and uh, two spring seasons and uh He's gone now, but uh, this but this year, uh, yeah, I, I photographed him last year. He's gone, but there's there's an offspring there that I photographed this year and did some dynamite stuff for him, boy. And he's also what I call a chocolate bird, but he's oh, yeah. I guess more accurately a, a bronze bird. Sure, he's not the same bird, but uh, but those genetics have been passed on to that boy, and he offered me some great shots too. But uh, yeah, the uh, the editor have been looking at that those shots for a while. And, uh, and again, they, he saw them on Facebook. So that, that was the biggest reason I went to Facebook was to, to get exposure. Sure. Uh, yep. You know, sometimes you might see a, a photograph two or three times, but I have to admit, uh, I'm, I'm also, uh, I have an audience of editors and publishers and, and art directors also that, uh, that see this stuff. And yep. so I like to keep things rotating in front of them to make some <laughs> sales to pay for my fuel and my, my peanut butter and jelly when I'm out on the trail
1: here. Man's gotta eat, man's gotta hunt, Jim. I like it. <laughs> hey, uh we're about to wrap up, but that you that brings up an interesting point. You mentioned the chocolate or bronze bird. Are all of the rough grouse in Alaska grey phase?
0: No. Um there there is there are
1: red birds. Okay. okay they're not red
0: nothing's red like an Appalachian bird, you sure. know, but uh and I had to say that because right, I have a biologist friend that's from uh, uh, the Appalachian area, and he said, "Don't you be saying Appalachian now; it's Appalachian. <laughs> so <you> uh, <laughs> get that straight." But uh, yeah, we our our birds are uh, we have a red phase; okay. they're just not as as brilliantly red as as even yours are. Sure, yeah. Uh, but we're mostly gray phase, you know, just like most other northern climes. But yep. uh, yeah, we uh, we certainly have we have the most the farthest north rough grouse and sharp tailed grouse, and probably the spruce grouse too but maybe not maybe there's some spruce grouse in canada that are maybe higher north and uh farther up north than, than ours but uh
1: yeah
0: but the rough grouse and sharp grouse ours are, the, ours are the the farthest north in the u.s
1: wonderful uh, stuff wonderful stuff jim well i i i can't thank you enough for coming on the project up and podcast it's it's clear to me that you and i could could chat for hours and uh, I I certainly hope to speak with you again. I really appreciate your time again. Like I said, where can people go to see more of your photography? Maybe read some of your writing. Well, uh,
0: my book is still uh, available. uh, Mostly through Amazon. That's the easiest way. And it's called Upland Hunting in Alaska. Okay. Uh, I'm working on a new one, but, uh, you know, books don't sell very good and, uh, you know, it, I make more money from magazines than I do books, but uh, and books are hard to hard to do right. Sure, um, yeah. So I take my time doing them. I may I may do another one. Um, actually, I have, an, I have a murder book in in the progress too, but I may never get them done. But otherwise, uh, uh, my website it's uh, simply Outdoors
1: dot com. Okay and i'm adding photographs to it all the time excellent and, i've uh, gone on there and, and browsed and perused a little bit and i will i'll, I'll include some links to your book on amazon i'll include a link to your website and probably your facebook page too so people can can see your work there cool sounds good
0: and uh, i really appreciate uh, talking with you and your podcast i think you're doing a good thing and you're reaching a lot of people that are uh, grouse nuts like the rest of us and and maybe some new ears you know some new hunters that uh, we can bring them in the fold, and, and
1: for that, uh, I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, that means a lot to me, Jim. I Again, I, I appreciate your time, and, and it was great chatting with you and getting to know you a little bit. Any last words of wisdom for those new hunters that are just getting into it?
0: Oh, just, again, be the student. Uh, always be the student. Uh, you can never learn enough. Read everything you can. Listen to every podcast. Uh, get out there in the woods and uh, watch these birds in the spring where they are. Uh, join uh, Rough Grouse Society, uh, Pheasants Forever, uh, Quail Forever, Woodcock Forever. But all these organizations. Uh, put your money where your mouth is. Uh, support them. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's uh, find a grouse hunter. Find somebody that we're always willing to talk and show people the way. We may not take them right to our coverts, but we will certainly give them all the assistance that they want and i know i will and anybody listening to this that wants anything from me uh, i'd be glad to
1: show them the way excellent excellent advice jim i appreciate it and i'm sure the listeners do too it's been fun i wish you the best in the prime of your season have a great hunt this weekend the rest of the way we'll keep in touch jim take care and thank you so much you're welcome nick have a good evening you too see ya bye Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You've been listening to the Project Upland podcast. We'd like to thank all of our partners on the podcast as they help bring you, the listener, each and every episode. Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Onyx Maps, and Gumleaf Boots. Please check out their websites, check out their operations, and support them as they continue to support the Project Upland podcast. Head over to projectupland.com for more great stuff, videos, articles, from Project Upland and Northwoods Collective. Check it out there at projectupland.com. Don't forget, you could be next week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway. All you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show by doing any and or all of these things. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Hit that little subscribe button. Share the podcast post. And please, reach out to us, send us your feedback, your thoughts on the show, and your suggestions for future episodes. I'm an Upland hunter. I love to hear from other Upland hunters. Tell me your story, reach out to me, use the contact form at the Project Upland website, or send me an email directly at nick.larsen at northwoodscollective.com. That's it for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. Get yourself podcast if you enjoyed this show then you might want to check out my show as well we highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode we cover all topics related to hunting dogs check out Gun dog It yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes